The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. Welcome into episode 10 of season 3 of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This week's guest is currently the manager of the drum department at Berkeley College of Music. He's also a multi-award winning session drummer in Boston. So in this episode, we talk about the gigging world, the session world, his role at Berkeley. And we get super nerdy and dive into a snare drum shootout. This time we are checking out four different 6 snap by 14 Ludwig style metal drums. And by Ludwig style, I mean they are, they have a center bead and they have rolled edges. And the four drums are, let's see, the, I'm not going to tell you the order because it's random. It's a blindfold test with Jonathan. But one of them, two of them are aluminum. One of them is chrome plated. One of them is a six lug that I believe is powder coated or it's like raw aluminum. Um, and then the other two, one of them is black nickel over brass. And then the fourth one is a stainless steel. So we just have fun listening to them in three different tunings, high, medium, and low. And then Jonathan and I just kind of nerd out on some drums. So let's get to the interview with Jonathan. And then towards the end of the episode, we dig into four different metal snare drums. Yeah, we were saying before we started, last time I saw you, you were in New York for a gig or something, a showcase. Yeah. I don't it, know how many years it, ago that was, but it was a minute. Definitely prior to the pandemic for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I think we just kind of met. I think I vaguely remember like getting it was a place we got a beer and like a hamburger or something like that. Um yeah, Lower and, side, maybe. Yeah. Um and yeah, it, it's so crazy that we've all had numerous transitions and new gigs since then so right. really cool to be able to speak to you on this definitely been a fan of the of the podcast for sure oh cool awesome so has the has the live gigging thing changed since then you know like you were you were on the road a little bit i think you were down with an artist who was playing at like the the pianos or somewhere down down the lower east side is that stuff still happening yeah it was just just at a a gig at Mercury Lounge, I think last weekend or the weekend before, you know, it took a, it took a definitely a dip and it certainly hasn't, I feel like it's back to a, to a, to an extent, but I, I feel like I've since then pushed, pushed harder to do more studio work. So mm -hmm. if the, if the live stuff comes along, it's, it's generally not like, um, you know, I kind of see what it is, see if the logistics and the, and the money are all worth, you know, the travel and that, that kind of thing. And not that I, that I don't want to do it. I just found that I've gotten so much studio work since then that I don't need to, you know, go back and forth, you know, or get in the road uh, as much as I did before. So it was, it, it was just a, a restructuring of priorities and finding a better balance. Um, I think the pandemic certainly helped that, but from, just seeing what friends are doing and stuff like that and being in Boston and, and, you know, working at Berkeley, I certainly see that gigs seem to be, you know, just as busy as they were before. Um, unfortunately, what I, what I have found in Boston is a lot of the venues that would host more of a local music scene um, have, you know, since moved on and they, they, they couldn't, 
sort of navigate through the pandemic um, and in, in place, we're finding that a lot of huge venues are going up in the city, you know, 2,500 to 5,000 capacity venues, which are great because it brings a lot of, you know, great acts to the city. But um, the, the smaller clubs were, were unable to sustain. So it's, it's getting a little harder for, you know, bands to find places to play. But I think everybody finds a, some sort of solution. They, they, venues that weren't necessarily venues before have become venues. And I think people are always trying to make the best of it. As the what uh, I moved to Pittsburgh a couple of years ago and started working in the clubs around here, and all the gigs are early. Like no one's doing mm. the ten to twos anymore. It's like eight to eleven or something like that. I, Is that I, the same? Definitely, definitely um, have noticed that. You know, now when I somebody's like, "All right, we you know we got to be there at, at five and we'll hit at eight forty five. I was like, "No, is that what time the show starts?" And then then we're on at ten. It's like, no will be on at 8:45 so which i have no no Same. problems with that at, <laughs> at all and i feel like a lot more people are inclined to come out on a tuesday night and they're like oh that's i'll be home by 10 kind of yeah. thing so definitely have noticed earlier uh earlier show uh schedules which is which is pretty cool nice and so pressburg's got a great scene yeah i mean there's music everywhere it's just in different little pockets you know yeah is that still opus is that still a booking agency there or i, I feel like that was any of that yeah. stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> i get called and i just show up and play <laughs> yeah absolutely awesome so what's the session scene like in in boston said so you're doing a lot of studio work yeah it's 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 not so much of a session town quote unquote town like a nashville or a or an la would be but there's a lot of music coming out of the city and they need people to play on those, on those records and stuff like that. I, I'm in a cool situation because I work alongside um, a producer who does a lot of in, in the box beat making, but has found that he really likes live drums on a lot of his records and artists that he works with. So, mm. so we, I get an insane amount of work from the amount of work that, that he's bringing in as well. So, um, so yeah, I, I think I found a little pocket that, that works for me, but I think it, I had to put myself out there for many, many years in the city in order to, you know, let people know this is what I'm doing. And I just sort of found this really cool situation. we got the studio, a producer that works on a lot of records, I have a lot of artists that come to me that want drums and it all sort of, you know, works out of this studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So, um, but I feel like there are a lot of people here who play with different artists and play on a lot of records or do stuff in the studio, but I still don't think anybody really calls it a session, you know, session town kind of thing. I think it's, it's really a band town. I think people like to have bands and official members of their projects here. So, you know, when you have that conversation about, Oh yeah, you just pay me and I go in and I'll do your record and I don't take any of your promo photos with you. You, you know, that kind of thing. I think that conversation is getting easier and easier, but for in the past, it was kind of like, I don't, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what you mean by, by session player. Um, and now it's, it seems very much, uh, uh, a popular thing here for people to, to be hired out to play uh, a certain role 
um, on these projects, which is cool because, you know, you used to have to go to New York or you have to fly out to LA or try to get your name in in Nashville or something like that. Now it doesn't feel like you have to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Do you end up getting called to do like shows with these acts as well after the fact? Yes. So I, uh, the cool thing is, um, well, what I always do is if I'm working with a new artist and we do their record and, and they're like, Oh, I'm going to go out and support this. I always throw out my name and say, Hey, listen, like I'm available to do the live aspect. And, and that's a great sort of, um, you know, dovetail off the session because it's like, Oh, you obviously know these songs very well. Cause we just did a whole record on them. And then they're like, Oh, do you want to use the guitarist that was on this record? Do you want to use the bassist that was on this record? So a lot of times they go, well, you were all the players that worked on this record. Are any of you interested in, you know, touring in support of it? And um, so it's, it's nice to be able to, to do that. And I think that a lot of the people here want both of those aspects. Whereas some people like, no, I just want to do the studio. I'm happy to do the record and, you know, go find your players. But I like that balance. I like to know that if, the record is really cool and it, it 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 has some legs and feels like it'd be a fun project to play live absolutely put my name out there and i think that takes the pressure off of the artist to be like okay now i have to find a band to mm. play this stuff um i think when all is said and done if i liked it and they liked it and we had a good vibe you know you may find that that it's an easy conversation to have afterwards and say hey do you want to do some shows off of this how do you navigate the business side of it is that that like, upfront, like do you want me to play shows well unfortunately i need this much money or i mean how does it does that happen quickly the, you know it always I, and i've been doing this for so many years I, that conversation is always so uncomfortable for me because just love doing it as an art form and, and being part of the creative process um but I think, you know, later in my life, I realized things are very expensive and having a yeah. you know family is very expensive. Um, and so in the city is very expensive in general. Um, so I feel like you, you kind of have to play it by if you know that this artist that you're working with has backing from a label or a management company, you know, that conversation is a little easier because it's not something that's coming directly out of there you know, pocket kind of thing. Um, so I feel like it's, it's every situation is slightly different. You know, I also mm. work at Berkeley, so it's a little bit easier for me to say, yeah, I could take a hit financially going out on the road because I really do believe in this artist and the music. Um, and I have this other piece that sort of, you know, is a safety net. Um, whereas if this was the only thing I was doing, it would be a hard conversation to, to have. Be like, I need to make this much money. Um, I'm also at the point in, in my career, not, not in a, like a, a bragging way, but more like, I don't want to sleep on a random person's floor when I go out on the road or mm-hmm. sleep in the car kind of thing. I, I do, I did that for many years, you know, through Europe and across the United States. So it would be nice if, you know, there was logistics that were sort of like figured out prior to this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that like I need money for food or any of that stuff. But, you know, if there's a, if there's hotels or, or places to stay and transportation's covered, like, those little things are super helpful. So I think you have to you have to really feel out what kind of uh, finances this artist has. And then sometimes you just have to be like, 
I can't do it for free and I'm not going to leave my my job for two weeks to do this because I really believe in you. It's just not feasible. And I think more and more people these days sort of understand that like it's expensive. It's expensive. And they just spent, you know, 10, 15, $20,000 making the record. Mm -hmm. So there's, there may not be a huge budget after, after that. So I think it's a, it's not a hard conversation, but it's definitely something that needs to be talked about and, you know, happy to, happy to go to, New York or Connecticut or throughout New England and, and tour around there. It's it's easy. You can make it work. But if the person's like, oh, we're going to do the Midwest and the West Coast, then yeah, there's, you know, there's some sort of financial conversation that does need to to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if it's a good vibe and you can, and there's transparency and honesty there, it's, it's a normal conversation. Everybody needs money to survive kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the the session work itself. Are you having to like adapt the way you play the drums to fit with modern production? I assume there's probably a lot of like loops and stuff you're replacing or layering on top of. Like, what are you what are you doing to these tracks? Yes, so that's a great question. I have this conversation. I actually just did a clinic with Adam Marcello in amsterdam uh a couple weeks ago and we had this conversation and i was talking to the students about how you know every time the producer calls me he's like yeah i'm gonna i got a project for us to work on we gotta we gotta knock out 10 15 songs in the studio and come in and we'll take a listen to him and i'll and i'll come in and i'll listen to the drums that you know he already put on the tracks i'm like what do you need me for these are these are awesome like this sounds perfect um and so like I sort of watch and get this this feeling like um, am I like witnessing my do I need to go look for a different job kind of thing. Um and what I found is as brilliant are these as these programs are as great as these sounds in the computer are they they can't quite figure out the imperfections of a human, you know? And and so when you have a track that's got great drum sounds on it and the song's going along and you want it to come up to that next level, you can't just raise the volume of the of the the MIDI drums or the MIDI beats that you're working on. Like you need something else to to bring it to a to to that next level to to raise the energy in the song. And and what we've found is if the drums the computer drums are are starting the track and then the live drums go on top of that, there is this moment of of uh excitement that comes out and it's even if i'm playing the same part that's already on the record or that's already been created there is a sense of something getting bigger or something having more energy um and i found that that there's i there's no shortage of work i mean there is a need for that that imperfection that human side of making music otherwise and i think quest love talked about this too it was like music's not human anymore there's nothing fun listening to a song that's like so perfectly produced and there's no flaws in it like at some point we're so we're so ingrained with that currently that it's nice to hear you know oh that something changed in the song it sounds like the hi-hat's not as as robotic anymore it sounds like that snare has a live feel to it and that's because it was done mm-hmm. you know live so i think even with ai and and all that technology and stuff like that i feel like people are are starting to come around to eh, maybe 
maybe we still need um or still need to appreciate the fact that like it's still humans making the music so there still needs to be humans incorporated in the music um and i think luckily i work with a producer who still very much believes in that process and you know we'll play a song for an artist and you know, I've I've had times where he didn't tell the artist that that he was bringing in me f- to do live drums, and we'll go in the studio, and she's like, I noticed that um that uh you know I'm paying for Jonathan, or I got billed for Jonathan, and I, I don't know why we need a drummer. And what he'll do is we'll sit down and he'll be like, okay, here's your song, as is, as I created, and they'll be listening to it, and he goes, okay, here's the song when we added the drums, and their their expression is so like they can they can sense like wow the song came up it didn't change the parts weren't any different i didn't hear jonathan's drums it was all blended in together but the energy of the song the the moments of dynamics that come and go throughout the song because of that human element are are significant and then he'll mute me and he'll play it again and be like you know the song kind of lives here you know and then when you add that those extra pieces and it has to be done thoughtfully the song does do that. And I think that more and more artists are coming around to the fact that like, it is important to have some human element to the music because at, at its base level, they're the human that's still creating it. So, you know, you still need humans to be a part of it from a instrumental point of view, I think. Well, Mm -hmm. hopefully (laughs) next year I could be completely phased out of, (laughs) of a career. No, let's hope not. (laughs) So do you, is it like, are you going for takes at this point? Or are you just kind of coming up with ideas and going for playlists so they can pick and choose what they use? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an awesome question. It's like the days of me, um, you know, doing a full take of a song in the studio seem, seem like not so much anymore. I mean, you, you find that like a basic day of processes as the, the the producer will be like, hey, listen, I have 15 songs. We need to do them. We have four hours to do them. And I need your drums on all of them. And the songs that I've never heard before, you know, until we pull them up in the studio. So what what ends up happening is things are cut up. And that's the great thing about the computer. So basically, I'll go in, we'll, we'll set up the drums, get the sounds or whatever. And then he'll be like, okay, here's the song. And he'll play it. And he'll go, play what you think while I'm kind of, rec- I'll hit record, play what you think goes along with this. It'll be flubs and stuff like that. And he goes, okay, that sounds great. I really like that part. Let me let me punch you in here. Play that. Give me a fill so we have a transition into the next section. Um, okay, now on this one, just give me some hi-hat. Okay, do this. You know, so it, it, it really is deconstructed because you need it to happen very quickly. And if I am had to play full takes of songs with all of the parts and the structures of the song on a song that I've never heard, it, you know, it's going to take a while for me to remember, okay, like, okay, this is how the verse goes. This is a chorus. This is the bridge section. Okay, now I got to get a flawless take in order for him, you know, for them to get that. And I have to do this for 14 more songs in a four-hour period. In a perfect world and in unlimited time, yeah, I probably would want that because then it has a more natural, you know, vibe to it. But 
not it these days it's like it's like i want something very specific on the snare drum and you trying to play that while you're doing the hi-hat and while you're doing your kick pattern when you've just heard this song five minutes ago you know it's not good you know it's going to take a bit and play it to a click track you know you know kind of thing so what you find is give me the kick and the snare now let's add the hi-hat or I mean, even even I saw a video on the Alicia Keys, uh, This Girl's on Fire. I mean, the guy was down on the floor using a mallet, you know, for the bass drum. And it was like, he wasn't, did he not play it as a drummer? No, he just, he wanted the sound and he wanted it to sound the way he wanted it. So he had to go down and play with the mallet and on his knees and play the kick part that you would generally play with your foot, you know, and he got the sound that I wanted. And that's sort of, the cool part of the studio is that you're, you know, you're you're deconstructing the song and you're coming up with the the perfect way to record it. Um, and then obviously live, you need to, you know, learn to play those parts, you know, and play them live. But yeah, I don't I, I think that and I work, you know, working at Berkeley, I feel like a lot of students that I talk to, I feel like a lot of them are you tell them that story and they're like, oh, so you're not playing the drums on the you know the song kind of it's almost like the, it's offensive if you can't do it and it's like it's, that's it's the wrong way of thinking about it you're being asked to come up with something specific and it may not be like the way that you think it's supposed to you know happen um and but i still have those sessions in which all four or five members of the band are in the room and we all have to like go at the same time and then at the end of the take you know, everyone's like, well, I, you know, I had a bunch of clams on the second verse. And it's like, did the drummer, did the drummer get it, <laughs> its take? Because once the drummer gets the take, then we can all just go back in and punch in after that. So, you know, that's how I remember recording. I mean, mm -hmm. I had days where I was, I mean, I'm older, but I remember recording to tape and being like, well, it, uh, you, you kind of like, you kind of were like, well, it wasn't miserable. So let's just go with that one, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I feel like that's unfortunately the part that doesn't happen as much anymore. But you you follow the way the things trend trends are happening, and I don't feel any less of a drummer because I I was, you know, on the floor. You know, the the sound that we needed just happened to be me playing my sticks on the drum throne, like. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, that was what sounded good for the song. So, you know, I played on the drum throne and you had to mic up the drum throne. So I like that that creative aspect of it. What is your gear that you take for one of these kind of marathon sessions? So um, I I Ludwig came out with the new Sonic kit Um and I was very fortunate to be a part of the, like the marketing campaign for that. And so they were like, Hey, you know, we came up with the digital oyster, uh, wrap that, mm -hmm. that was really cool. And, um, I didn't have any more space in my house. And I used to always bring my drums to the studio back and forth this year. I said, you know what, I'm going to leave this kit here. And we tuned it up and that's the house kit at the studio. It's one of the, most incredibly like versatile drum sets that I think the studio has ever had. So that's there. Um, and then, you know, just a, a, 
a whole bunch of uh, Zildjian symbols that have been that I've donated or Zildjian donated to the studio, and they have a good, you know, 10, 12 snares there. There's a, you know, I give them the, the I gave. The other thing is, it's like my home studio, so it's almost like I'm gonna just leave all this stuff here, and anybody can use it. I'm totally cool with that, but that way I don't have to bring anything. So there's a Black Beauty there. There's some wooden Ludwig snares there. Uh, I think there's a piccolo. Um, you know, if I need something very specific, like hey, listen, for this record, we're gonna um, we want a really deep sounding snare or something like that. But the caveat to that is what you found is. Like I said, they have 15 songs, they have 20 songs, and they have a four to six hour block to get all the drums for them. The computers, this is where they're very helpful. It's because, you know, hit the snare on all 12, 12 or 15 of those songs, and we'll adjust the sound accordingly, you know, to, to you know, what we want kind of thing. Certainly detuning, certainly cranking it, making it really tight, at least having two snares there for different sounds. Symbols get changed out a bunch. But like I said, it, it's it's in a studio, so it's almost like you can have extra stuff on the drum set already mic'd up and ready to go. Um, but there's certainly times where, where the producer's like, I want some really dirty-sounding hats on this. So then we have to change out you know, the hats. But for the most part, it's a regular... Uh, four-piece kit, um, maybe five cymbals up there, two snares, um, and if they want something really specific, you know, you can make adjustments there. But you know, the days of bringing five different snare drums to a studio session just don't feel like they people have the time, mm. you know, to do that. Which is sad because, but I'm very fortunate that I got to to do it at one point, you know, it, you know, now it's the same thing. I, I got my master's in photography. Um, and, you know, as an undergrad, I was working in the dark room and had to, you know, use all the chemical baths to um, develop my film and stuff like that. Now I can do everything on my iPhone, but I got to experience it. Mm -hmm. So I know how it works. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to experience what it was like to change out your snare drum you know, with what this song needed or switch out a kick drum here and there, change cymbals. And now you find that the, the, the technology and the software is so good that, yeah, you can hit the, I can hit the same snare on all 15 songs and we can adjust it accordingly. You know, I think when, when there, when you go for do those records that, that, you know, you go away for a week and it's a, you know, it's um it's a getaway recording session. It can be a little more lean, a little more flexible and bring different things and try different things. And I think that's really fun. But my world consists of getting out of work at Berkeley at five and then doing a five hour session a few times a week, you know, at the studios. So sometimes it's uh, convenience is better to just have the drums set up as there is and, and go from there. You have to go with like drier, deader sounds because of the technology, knowing that like samples are going to be layered on or whatever might happen. Do you do a live wide open drum sound ever anymore? Uh, well, the cool thing about this space is a very, very open room. So they can put it's a it's a huge, huge space. So um, there are mics spread out throughout the throughout the um, the live area so they can get different sounds if they want to use you know something from a mic that's 40 feet away they can do that um 
I tend to just have like a G2, Evans G2 on mostly everything, which is pretty, you you know, across the uh, board, just a good versatile snare head. I've certainly used the HD dry stuff on, um, on some sessions. Um, but the most, the most that happens is they'll change out mics, you know, mm. and say, We're, we want something different on this snare sound and they'll do it from a miking standpoint, um, rather than, you know, me changing anything on, on my end kind of thing. Interesting. Cool. What is your role at Berkeley? So I, uh, am the, I sort of manage and oversee the, the percussion department. So okay. somebody that kind of deals with the day-to-day -day operations of the school. So all the students are sort of under my watch, um, faculty, when visiting artists come in, I kind of make sure that that's all sort of like handled, but I also do all of the social media, all the graphic design for the department. I do all the photography. Um, so, cause it's, you know, we, we have like 600 kids. So there's, there's two chairs of the department who do chair, you know, political stuff and some administration stuff. And then you need somebody to kind of like basically make sure the department is running smoothly, you know, day in and day out, you know, making sure that the semesters are running um, smoothly. So it's pretty cool because I get to have my hands in a lot of mm. different aspects. And then the, the cool thing is like, I'm sort of that, you know, you get a lot of older people here got a lot of students here. So I sort of fall in this middle area age bracket in which I'm a good resource for students who are going to graduate soon and want to know how to get their careers off the, off the ground. So I'm not that far removed from, you know, I could be their 10 year, 10, 15 mm -hmm. year plan kind of thing. Um, which is great because then, then, so I sort of fall as like a, this sort of, unofficial advisor to a lot of students who, who, who kind of want to know, you know, talk about endorsements, talk about touring, talk about studio work, talk about how to get your name out there, how to do social media stuff. So it's really, it's a perfect position for me because I get to utilize a lot of different aspects of, of uh, my skill sets and experience a lot of things that maybe a faculty member wouldn't because they're, they're literally just here to teach uh, lessons and, and classes and stuff like that. So, um, that's my role here at Berkeley. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instrument, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. How do you manage the social media side of it? Do you do a batch stuff out, or is it daily for you there? For here, I I try to do obviously there's a lot of content going on. Um, we try to really capture what the students are doing here, uh, you know, day in and day out. But on the flip side of that, there are 
uh, areas that we like to focus on. So, for instance, our percussion department is made up as of drum sets, mallet players, orchestral players, hand percussionists, steel pan players, um, you know, West African, you know, instruments and, and um, world music. Um, so what we found is there's no shortage of drum set players. They are here. They're always going to be here. It's like 80% drum set players. Where we like to focus our attention is, is bring visibility to the other instruments in order to try and bring visibility around the world to people who are like, oh, can I, what can I study in the department, you know, at, at, at Berkeley? And you also find that it's unfortunate, but a lot of the areas that we have low, maybe low population or low um, enrollment are areas in which the instruments or that music is coming from areas that uh, have less opportunity to um, come to Berkeley and pay for, you know, how much it costs to come to Berkeley. So we really try to bring visibility to, you know, the, the world music side of things, the mallet side of things, um, and to entice more people to come here and hope that more opportunities for scholarship, you know, happen and more opportunities to bring these students here on other means. Um, so you may find when you look at the, the pages, you may find like, oh, there's not a whole lot of drum set stuff going on. But, you know, that is a there's a reason behind there's a methodology uh, methodology. It's because that we want to highlight that, you know, we only have eight steel pan players here. We, we would love to have more steel mm -hmm. plan, st uh, uh, steel pan players here. So, you know, there's a lot of conversations that, that say, OK, what's what's enrollment like? Here's where we're lacking. Here's where we want to bring visibility. But um, because I have the ph photography degree, um, you know, I can really capture students in, in their element. Um, and, uh, and so, it, you know, it works out, you know, for me to, um, to be able to utilize that skill set. And, and so it's a, if it's not a daily thing, also it's, it's Berkeley. So you have to share what else is going on in the college and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, day, day in, day out of what happens at Berkeley, if there's events happening or if there's, um, visiting artists that we have coming in. I mean, we just had uh, the Tito Puente 100. The Mambo Kings were here last mm, week, the 100th hundred, cool. hundred birthday of Tito Puente. So we even had um, Gilberto uh, Santa Rosa come here. And he, I mean, he's a mega nine, six, eight, ten time Grammy winning singer. And he came and he sat in a classroom with 15 students. And I mean, it's like, sometimes very surreal who's on campus at any given point. Mm -hmm. So you're tasked to just kind of document these things. Yeah. Passively. Not, uh, like just kind of walk in and this is what's happening or you plan it out ahead of time. Some things are planned. Some things I cap capture a moment of cool things happening. That wasn't, that wasn't planned out. A lot of times it's fun to just, you know, at the end of the day. So say, at th from three to five, I kind of walk between the two buildings and see what's happening and get some content there. But of course I know when some of these people are here and I can plan accordingly. And a lot of times I have access to them prior to it getting, you know, crazy. Um, then there's times where there's like no indication that, that this person was on campus. And all of a sudden you need to be quick and be like, 
tell them who you are. You're not just like this person that's running up to them and say, I work for the drum, you know, percussion department. Here's my, you know, blah, blah. I'd love to take a picture to kind of show. And most people are, I mean, when you get to a certain point, you know, you have to understand that that's a way of life. Some people don't love it. Some people mm. are completely okay with it. But um, yeah, I mean, there was a point. I mean, this one I didn't know. This was really interesting, but I found out the next day that like Ringo Starr was in the room next to where I was doing a get, getting some sort of like award kind of thing. But because he's Ringo Starr, they didn't let anybody at the college know that he was there <laughs> because the, it yeah, there's all of Boston would have shut down kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. But like they're taking they posted a picture of where he was and when it happened. And I'm like, I just, I walked by that room. You're telling me that Ringo <laughs> Starr was in that room when, not that I could have run in and taken a picture, but some of that stuff tends to happen, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes you get lucky and, yeah. and I've been here for almost 10 years and I've certainly, you know, I've walked by a room and there's uh, Omar Hakim talking with Greg filling gains. And it's like, can I take a picture? Can I take a picture? <laughs> Can I take a picture with both of you kind of thing? And also take a picture and promote the department. And there'd be no students there because, you know, these students sometimes don't know who these old people are that uh -huh. literally redefined the entire music industry. <laughs> are you, do you still find time to practice? It sounds like your, your life is pretty full. I wish I had more time to do that. Um, what I find is I find pockets um, of time to kind of go in and try things on my own, uh, work on things that I feel like maybe I went into a session and I was like, I should have done this better kind of thing. I, I find those moments. But what I find is a lot of my practice is preparing for something that I have coming up, mm -hmm. in which case a lot of times – somebody sends me something like, can you, can you record on this and I'll hear what they want and be like, I know that I'm going to need to work on that before I go into the studio um, or go on a live show. So I find that like a lot of my practice is based on work that's coming my way and that I know that I'm going to need to work on that because it may not be something of a, of a, uh, a natural, like, feeling that I could just go up and wing it and I would be fine, you know? So I do find that a lot of my practice is, is based on, um, stuff that's coming in and that I need to work on it. But, you know, at, at some point you've been, you, this is day in and day out. I feel like that when I do have those moments of, uh, of time off that I, that I could spend practicing, I, I feel like I try to be a normal human right. and, you know, and, <laughs> be friends or, you know, obviously spend time with my daughter as much as possible. So, um, so I, I really do find that like, it's, you know, at lunchtime at Berkeley, if I don't have anything to do, yeah, I'll go in a room and try different things out and listen to symbols that I haven't played maybe, you know, or snare drums that I, that I, that I want to hear how they sound. And, um, or if, you know, I watched something on, on social media that I, that I really liked. I'll go in and say, Oh, that was pretty cool. Let me go try that. So there's always playing, which is in a form getting better at what you're doing. But yeah, I wish there was more time to do a lot of things. I hear you. 
I hear you. Well, you want to listen to some snare drums? Absolutely. All right. It's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I have a, I guess you must have taken a picture of a Superphonic or something. For some reason, I associate you with six snap by 14 metal snare drum. Mm-hmm. I love that. All those, the Ludwig, like uh, copper phonic or the raw brass. I mean, yeah. I use those, uh, Superphonic, I use those in the studio all the time. Okay. So what I did was I grabbed four Ludwig style six snap by 14 metal drums. Mm-hmm. One is chrome over aluminum. It's superphonic, 10 lug. One is powder coated over aluminum, six lug. That is, that matches a maple, trash talk. One is a chrome stainless steel tie. And then the fourth one is black nickel over brass with solid brass hoops, matches a maple. So this isn't like a can you guess the drum kind of thing. It's more like <laughs> let's listen to it, assess what we think we like or whatever, yeah. and then kind of rank our favorites by the end of it, okay. and then, then we'll reveal what it was. So I've got two I'm versions. Very excited. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to share. That my would screen. be really funny to say. Could you could you name that snare drum? I mean, I feel like I nerd out about snare drums a lot, but I don't know. Why I mean, do that? Yeah. yeah, they're all they're all kind of the you know I do these often. I did one with um, Mike Johnston where it was shallow metal drums of different types. I did one with Carter McLean where it was it was maple drums of different construction. Awesome. And it was uh, super fun, and we kind of always get to the conclusion like it's it, you're talking about small differences, like little yeah. tiny little differences. Yeah, but it's still fun. Of course. <laughs> so, I'm going to share. Hopefully you can see this and hear it. So this is our first drum. I have no idea what it is. I don't remember. I did these over the weekend. So can you see this? It's all like... Uh, it's blurred out. Yeah. Blurred out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now can you hear it? Yes. Okay. So we did three. Let me give you the, the background. Three different tunings. Okay. The bottom heads were all identical, F-sharp, okay. fourth octave. So pretty tight, but not super cranked. And then I did like a a high tuning. So the drum fundamental note was G-sharp. And then I took it down a whole step to F-sharp and then to E. So you get three identical tunings from each drum. And I play the same John Bonham groove or something. I don't remember awesome. how to play so here we go. This is our first drum, which I labeled as Y-R-I-Y-I-E-W. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. so here we go.
All right, that's our first drum. Any thoughts? <laughs> the, that first, the the first, the tighter version was really was really nice. But I just did a record with that third tuning, something very similar to that third that third tuning, and it was super cool. The what what we could do with that sound in the mm. you know once it was in the um, computer, um, but that had a great ring to it. You you didn't tell me which ones the order of them, right? No, I don't know what they are. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're gonna reveal after the fact, so that's number okay, one. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was that was beautiful. What drum did you use on the session for that sound? Uh, that was the uh the copper phonic. Okay. Um, it lo loosened like loosened up. You said none of the bottom heads changed on any of these, right? The wires, yeah. everything was the same, just a batter head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we did um. You know, I always crank the 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 bottom head. It kind of just leave it and then adjust, like you said, the the uh, better side. But I did let the um, the strainer wires. I loosen them up a little bit to do that um, for the session, and then the head was pretty loose. And um, did you know? Did a stand on? You know, I stood on the the head you know really really like loosened up the um the batter head um but it was a very very cool sound and it was very similar to what i just heard on that mm. um, so i'm super interested to know what snare that was okay well let's see let's go to another one we can get some kind of comparison here this one let me open it up this one i labeled u-o-i-r-d-f <laughs> <laughs> All right, and here it goes. All right, that's number two. I'm making a, I'm making a, <laughs> like a, a favorite sound for each drum. That set, that second tuning on that drum, oof, that was, that was beautiful. I got, I can't wait to find out what that was. Okay, cool. 
Now, if you had to pick one of those of those two, would you pick one over the other, or they just give you something? the actual snare? Yeah, yeah, the drum itself. Yeah, um, I mean, I love the tight sound because I work on a lot of hip hop, so that um, that tight sound is great. But the warmth and the tone of that second tuning of that second drum. I mean, I immediately grabbed a piece of paper because I, I want to know what that was. So, <laughs> so far, that snare, whatever that second tuning was on that snare is is so far the winner. All right. Let's go to the third one then. This one I labeled G-H-K-H-G-K. All right. I can't tell. I just randomly hit keys on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Drum number, oops, drum number three. That's number three. That one was interesting. The, the the they're all six and a half, right? Yep. That that first tuning on that one was very thin sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm just curious what what drum because it almost felt like it it wouldn't have been a six and a half because you know that even when you're got the tight tuning on the first two, you could still feel the body. Yeah. You know of that that snare, but that one's different. So that might be a obviously interested but i'm wondering if that was a the the material you know kind of thing that them gave it that but um i don't know which one yet but it was very fat the third one was very fat sounding which was super cool but um i put a question mark by that one okay all right fourth all right fourth one this is our last drum last but not least i labeled this one d-a-g-s-d-g Mm, Those of you playing along, that's for my <laughs> for my reference when I'm dropping in the files. All right, last drum.
we go. That's all, all right. four drums. You said one of the drums was a six slug? Yeah. One of them was a, a, a it was basically like an Acrylate style shell, but six lug. I wonder if that was okay. All right. I have some <laughs> some some thoughts. Okay. Right. I'm ready to figure this out. Uh, okay, now do you get to reveal? Yeah, what do you which one do you want to start with? I want to know what that second drum was. Okay, that was And I don't have the letters marked down. U O I R D F. Oh, oh man. You know what? I'm not surprised that this was your favorite. Superphonic. Ah, yes. <laughs> An old Absolutely. 70s yeah, pop. that thing is. Look at all that that wear and tear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was that second that second sound of was flawless to so me. Just for reference, that was right here. Mm. That's as perfect as you get. Mm. So good. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's no reason why it's the most recorded drum in history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyone playing along, that was tuned to a fundamental of F sharp. Bottom head was F sharp, and then whatever the top head needed to be to get the whole drum to be an F sharp. That was awesome. That's the, my winner so far. But I want to see. I got to see what the, the third drum is. The third drum. Yeah. That was the one you thought was like thin sounding. Yeah. I just there was okay. there's consistency across the board with with all of them. That one, right off the rip, something seemed different. I'm wondering what it was. Well, uh, you probably won't be surprised. It is steel. Okay. It's a steel shell, which probably makes it. I've, I've made a note that it had sounded kind of scooped, like a lot of highs and a lot of lows, but not much mids. And this is which drum? It's a Thai stainless steel. Okay. Um, I think it's a one millimeter shell maybe a 1.5 yeah so that makes sense right. steel yeah. is is a brighter sounding drum yeah yeah let's check out okay. that first tuning yeah. again yeah definitely That's like Chad Smith, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But his drum is what? His he's got a, a five. five and a half. Yeah. Five. So I mean, I did say it sounded like it was a a a, a, a less, you know, maybe around the five. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Uh the I had a check mark on the first sound of the first drum. Mm. That was the Y Y drum. Ooh, mm. this one this is one of my favorites. This is the brass, black nickel brass with solid brass hoops. It's the only one that yeah. has solid brass hoops, which doesn't make a difference. It's heavier than all the other drums. Absolutely. So the first that's tuning. Good, good patina, too. Yeah, that's a Black Ugly series, which they made like 50, and then they'll never make them again, they said. So cool. Yeah. Well, per, you got one. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good sound. 
Do you have UV UV ones on the top there? G two and everything. Oh, those are G two. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I'm like looking as if I can look over. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good sounding drum. Which is weird because this drum I routinely use for the lower, fatter thing, throw mm. a wallet on it. That has a nice ring for the for the for the uh tightest yeah. uh tuning. All, All right, right, so on the fourth one, I love the first and third tuning. Um let's do because we haven't done a third a a third fat loose mm. tuning yet. So I want, what's the fourth drum on that one? Okay, that is the six lug aluminum. So, it, who's that's which Master's, drum is it? Masters of Maple Trash Talk. Okay, this was a drum that they got in a lot of trouble with because Dave Grohl was using it, and DW wasn't too happy about that. Uh, <laughs> Dave Grohl can do whatever he wants. Exactly. So you want to hear the third? Yeah. <laughs> that's. That's cool. That's a good sound drum. That's cool. That's a good sound. Uh, first of all, I just want to say that Ludwig needs to be made aware of the fact that I was able to pick out <laughs> the, the Ludwig sound off of four snare drums. With uh, very similar shells, yeah. <laughs> with very similar shells. So, my goodness, I'm very happy right now. Those are very cool. Very cool. That was fun. So yeah, it's and what what I was cool about your favorites, they were I mean, we can kind of take the steel drum out. Unfortunately, that was the maybe the one that wouldn't make the cut, but if you're going to take three drums, you've got the brass for the tight, you've got the superphonic for the middle, and you've got the six lug for the for the low. Yeah. That's a that was really cool. And I mean, they're all I mean, you know, I would use each of those, you know, in the studio. Um, I mean, they all are incredibly good sounding, you know, snare drums. Um, I I tend to really focus on the highest tuning, the tightest tuning because of the music. I do a lot of pop, you know, songs. I do a lot of hip hop, which requires that, you know, really like, you know, no decay, not a lot, mm. whole lot of decay, just really like punchy, um, get in and get out sound. So um very interesting to hear and of course in my world like i'm very loyal to ludwig so i have a lot of snare drums so it's really great to hear how those other sounds go but that first snare drum that tight tuning on that first snare drum um definitely caught my ear i thought that was a great that was a great sound and six and a half is tough because it you know it and especially a six lug is tough too because you can only crank it Oh, you can yeah. only crank it crank it so much. I have a um I have a really beautiful uh 70s, maybe late 60s um uh uh with the black oyster Ludwig 
Oh, um, yeah. And the snare that came with it is a six is a six lug. And I found that I, I could only bring that around for gigs that that require that didn't require the drum to be, you know, cranked too much. It just could never get it, you know, tight enough to where I wanted it just kind of always lived in an area, which is which is great for some things. But, you know, the snare drum that I keep in my bag in ready to go, the drums that are ready to go for no matter what the gig is, doesn't matter. I have a, a kit for that, a cymbal bag that has, you know, um, that in a snare. Um, and that's the five and a half uh, by 14 Black Beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, that just goes with me, you know, wherever, wherever, no matter what. Um, and we didn't even go into cymbals, but, you know, it's all K, dark stuff with a, with a, 21 inch sweet ride mm-hmm. and some new beats um on the hi-hats um but that snare drum i feel like is this perfect drum that can you can loosen it up enough as much as you want you can tighten it down as much as you want and it just got a good overall you know sound so um you know really interesting to, to break down the, the six and a half stuff because they can be wonky oh they yeah can, you know, <laughs> um, but great you picked a great beat to really to, sh- to highlight them. <laughs> well, thank you for playing along, and we're at the end yes. of the hour. So, how can people find you to follow what you're doing and keep in touch? Uh, across all social media, it's JMU Drums at you know JMU Drums for mostly Instagram. I feel like I'm on most of the time, so that's Jonathan Matthew Altman Drums uh, on Instagram, social, Facebook, and all that stuff. But yeah, if anybody has any questions or or anything, um. I love talking about this stuff. Obviously, I can go well over an hour talking about it. Um, <laughs> but it was really great to talk to you, Mike. I, I really appreciate you bringing me on. All right, we've come to the end of the episode. That means it's time for me to ask you to like and to share and to subscribe and to write us a review and to give us a five-star rating. Um, I appreciate all of you and everyone who has been supporting the show. It definitely gives me life to keep it going. Um, but we would love this show to spread even further. So share it with your drummer friends. Share it with your bass player friends. Um, and as always, you can reach me at drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, have fun messing around with your drums. Go practice and see you then. <laughs>